All right, let's get started today. You know, they say that there are two constants in life. What are they? Death and taxes, right? I would like to submit there's, there's one more that I don't particularly enjoy that I'm really afraid of, and that's car maintenance. I'm not good with cars. I don't enjoy working on cars. I'm always a little scared that something's going to happen and something's going to break down. We have these complex machines and they are out in the elements all day long and there's moving parts. It's natural that they're going to break down. I just don't want to fix them. And the only way that I know that something's wrong is on the dashboard, you get those, those pretty little lights that light up and that, that tell you things in weird hieroglyphics that you're trying to figure out, what does this actually mean? And sometimes they tell you things like, something's going on with your tires. This is a really hard one to figure out. It, it, it takes a while. You're probably going to have to get the manual out in order to see uh, what this symbol means. But the, the tire pressure sensor, when this goes off, you, you need to put some air in one of your tires. You don't know which one. You got to figure that out, right? But you got to go find a service station that has air. Bonus points if you find one that has free air, right? But they probably don't, so you're going to have to find coins in your car, which we don't have coins. We don't use real money anymore. Where am I going to find coins? And then you get there, and you need a tire pressure checker thingy, and you test all the tires. But what pressure is it really supposed to be at? I, I don't know. Now I'm back in the manual trying to figure out what they should be aired up to, but that's different than the sticker that's on your door. And it's just like, I, I, I don't know. But eventually, I can figure out how to put air in my tires. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that bad, but I can put air in my tires. I can get that taken care of. Uh, this light popped on in my wife's car recently, and it said, hey, you need, new, you need more oil. And this was my chance as a husband and as a father and a provider to say, oh, honey, I got this. I'll take care of you, okay? And so I go to the, I'm going to stop by the, the auto supply store, and I'm going to pick you up some oil, and we're going to get this taken care of. Now, it did take three different websites at the store to figure out what kind of oil I was supposed to put in her car, so th that was fun. And then it took two YouTube videos to figure out where to put the oil in this car because it's really different and it's not where it's supposed to be. But I was able to walk in feeling very accomplished, her not knowing the struggles that I had. Honey, you're all set. Got you taken care of, all right? Now, there's one light that no one wants to see. It's the dreaded check engine light because this can mean anything. It just means, hey, something's wrong with your engine, which is like the whole entire car. There's just something wrong. There's a sensor somewhere. Something's broken. It's a cable. It's a belt. There's something wrong with your engine, and your car is going to die, all right? That's what I feel like. And so this means you're probably going to have to take it somewhere, and they're going to have to hook it up to a machine, and they're going to have to run some codes, and they're going to have to analyze and figure out what's going on. It's probably going to cost some more money and not coins this time. It's going to hurt financially to figure out why this check engine light came on. Now, I don't enjoy working on cars. I don't enjoy the maintenance and the problems that come with it, but these lights 
are like a little warning sign trying to get us to pay attention to something that could be a problem. Today we're going to talk about an emotion. We're going to talk about a really powerful emotion, this, this creature within that lives within us. And it can be both positive and negative. But when it's at its best, it's a warning sign. It's that light on the dashboard letting us know we need to pay attention to something. Today we're talking about guilt. Now, I want to start with just what is guilt? Because I would argue there are multiple types of guilt. First off, there's good guilt. There's things that you should feel guilty about. So, for example, if I'm going to dominate a whole tray of chocolate chip cookies, I should probably feel guilty about that, all right? For several reasons, actually, I would argue. The first one is because I could smell a tray of cookies and I will gain weight. And I know that if I eat the whole tray of cookies, it takes a whole lot more work to get it off than it did to put it on. So I probably shouldn't eat the cookies because of that. The second is it's probably going to do some damage to my body. You guys hear in the last week, the study came out about how, how many minutes a hot dog takes off your life. They're saying 36 minutes a hot dog takes off your life, right? Joey Chestnut's in big trouble, but if one hot dog does that, how many cookies are going to take off my life? It's probably not good for my arteries. It's probably not good for my body to do something like that. Now, I think the worst reason, the biggest reason why I should not eat the entire tray of cookies is my family's going to get mad at me, right? I'm going to have sad kids with the puppy dog eyes that's going to turn into anger when they realize that I ate all the cookies and everyone's going to be upset with me. I don't want that feeling. I don't want to make someone upset. So therefore, guilt works in this situation and teaches me not to eat the whole tray of cookies. So sometimes guilt can be good. In fact, uh, Scripture says it's the spirit that convicts. So God's spirit, it's his job is to, to be that voice inside of us, to, to let us know, hey, mm, that's not right. Hey, uh, actually, I, I'd rather you not. Hey, you should really do this. Hey, you should really be here. The spirit actually works in us, and sometimes that can be the good guilt that we feel. Well, if there's good guilt, then there's probably also bad guilt, right? And bad guilt can be a thing, too. Have you ever had anyone try and guilt trip you, right? It's, it's probably not good guilt. But here's the deal. The remedy for guilt is action. So guilt makes us do something. So if I'm an unhealthy person and I want to use guilt in a manipulative way, uh, I can pressure you through guilt to, to do the actions that I want you to do. Psychotherapist Nikki Nance warns that what we call guilting or guilt tripping someone is actually a combination of, of three different things. It's complaining, it's blaming, and it's manipulating. Complaining and blaming and manipulating. And, and, and that's how someone can tease guilt out of you to get you to respond in, 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 a, in a bad way, in an unhealthy way. So if I can get you to feel guilty, I can move you towards my desired action, even though I'm using it in a shady way. Lots of examples of this. You probably have people in your life 
then when you start thinking about, oh, you know who, they always guilt trip me, yeah, it's probably a combination of complaining and blaming and manipulating. But there's also misplaced guilt. We don't want the bad guilt. We want the good guilt. We don't want the bad guilt. But it can be misplaced as well. This is where you feel guilty, but you're not the one that's responsible. Like maybe you have survivor's guilt. You walked away from a car accident and someone else didn't, and you feel guilty because of that. It was outside of your control. You might feel guilty for your parents' divorce when it has nothing to do with you. You shouldn't be trying to put on those feelings and emotions and that responsibility. But your guilt is misplaced. You might feel guilty for someone else's, another person's actions. You might feel guilty for another person's addiction. But it's not your place to take on that weight. It's not your place to take on that responsibility. Your guilt is misplaced. Now, finally, your guilt can also be irrational, okay? And I'm looking at the mothers here on this one because what do I know about mom guilt? I've done some research. I've read some articles. There's a thing called mom guilt. Am I right? Uh-huh. All right. And, and it's fascinating. Moms can feel guilty about all kinds of things that they should not feel guilty for. They, they can feel guilty that you can't give your kids everything. Like, I, I feel guilty that I can't give my kids all that they want. There's the, I had to say no guilt. Of course you had to say no. You're a parent. There's the, the guilt of you putting your needs first. There's the, I don't want to play right now guilt. There's the, I'm tired guilt that a mom has. There's the guilt for being a working mom. There's the guilt for being a non-working mom. There's guilt for being criticized about their parenting skills on social media. There's guilt that you haven't washed your hair in a week. And I just want to say, all of that is not rational. You should not feel guilty for those things. All right? It's amazing that mothers can get out of the house and props to you. So you're amazing. And we shouldn't celebrate kids' birthdays. I'm sorry. We shouldn't celebrate kids. We should celebrate parents that you kept a kid alive for a whole nother year. <laughs> so great work. Now, there is a rare phenomenon called dad guilt. It, it can actually exist, all right? Uh, I've only found it on TV, though. Any This Is Us fans, all right? This is the Jack Pearson guilt. This is the, he is just this perfect dad, larger than life personality. Everyone loves him. You cannot live up to his standards. Or if we have any little ones in the room, anyone a fan of the show Bluey? Oh my gosh, this is a great show. Such a good show. Now, Bluey's a dog, and Bluey's dad is named Bandit. And Bandit is the best dad in the whole world, and it's really frustrating because he is up for everything. He is, his imagination is incredible, and he will do dress-ups with the kids, and he will play these elaborate games with the kids. And so my kids want me to play Magic Statue all day long, just like Bandit, and you're like, it's the same scenario over and over again. But they want, they, they hold me to Bandit's standards. Uh, and sometimes I have dad guilt because I can't be that cool and that great. 
Now, these misplaced guilt, all of this has to do when we have a disconnect between what we hope for and the reality of what is. When hope doesn't equal reality, that's when we get guilt. And our, our guilt comes from this very strange combination. Jamie Kinney said this, our guilt comes from a very strange combination of wonderful intention and an imperfect world. So here's what this looks like, is especially when it comes to harming someone else or harming yourself, my intention, my hope is not to harm you. My hope and my intention is that we would be good, but because I'm broken, because I'm messed up and, you know, insert foot to mouth type situations, I end up hurting you. That disconnect causes me guilt. So this is where, when we look at reality, when we look at our hopes and our expectations, it's the guilt that wants us to fix these things. It's the guilt that moves us to action to say, no, I, I don't want that for you. I don't want to hurt you. I want to repair this. I want to apologize. And guilt serves as that warning light on the dashboard to motivate me to make things right. This is where guilt can be a good thing. So what we're, the story that we're going to look at today, guilt isn't actually mentioned in the passage. We, we won't find the word guilt here in this passage. And in fact, it's possible to read the story and go right through it so quickly that we even miss the context of where the guilt resides. But I would argue when we understand the background, when we understand the significance of what's happening here, we see the guilt loud and clear, and we see what Jesus does we see what our character does in order to resolve the guilt. We're going to look in Luke 19, is where we're going to spend our time. <clears throat> this is actually the only story, or the only account in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the, the stories of Jesus' life. This is the only time this story is recorded here in Luke 19. The setting is a place called Jericho. And uh, this is a, a fertile area. There's a lot of trade that happens here. So there's a lot of wealth that comes through this, this spot. And uh, fun fact, archaeologists consider Jericho the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. So going, uh, ha houses going all the way back to 8,000 B.C. Uh, last week, maybe it was a week before, our journey kids were learning about the story of Rahab. That's Jericho right? The, the walls of Jericho and being lowered down for the, the spies to get them out of the city. That's, that's this city. Um, fun fact number two, at 820 feet below sea level, it's also the lowest city in the world, all right? So Jesus is passing through here. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going up. He's going north to south, but instead of saying down, we would say down to North Carolina, up to Baltimore, right? He's going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is uphill. And we're introduced to a man in verse 2 by the name of Zacchaeus, all right? And so we see this story, and we, we get his title, and we find out that he's a, a chief tax collector. And just in case you didn't put two and two together with just his title, the, the passage also explicitly says, 
oh, and he was wealthy. Uh, you're going to get that from the title, but it highlights it again. He was wealthy. Well, how did he get all of this wealth? He got this wealth for working for the enemy. He is a tax collector, and so his job is to work for the Roman occupiers of the land and to go out and to tax his own people. So he is Jewish, he's taxing Jews, and then giving that money to the Romans after he takes his cut. But he's not just a tax collector. What is he? He's the chief tax collector. So that means he has people under him. He oversees a region. He has guys going out. They're collecting money. They're stealing money from people. They're keeping their cut. They bring it to Zacchaeus, and guess what? He gets to take a cut of everyone else's before he passes it on to the Romans. He is very wealthy because of his role. Now, Jesus knew the heart of a tax collector. He's got a tax collector on his team. One of his 12 used to be a tax collector. It's certainly possible that this is how Jesus even knows who Zacchaeus is. Maybe they're sitting around the campfire and Matthew's telling stories and he's saying, I know you guys hate me for what I've done and you think I'm a traitor and everything, but there's this other guy. There's this kingpin. He's the real one that is shady. He's the one that is really taking people's money. That, that guy's way worse than I am. Maybe that's how Jesus even knows who Zacchaeus is. But tax collectors were not appreciated, we'll say it that way, in this time and period. The uh, Jewish Mishnah, which is like commentary on the scriptures. So you have the, the Torah, you have things like the Ten Commandments. We know what that is, but how do we live that out? The, the Jewish Mishnah was the, the, the commentary on how to do that. The, the Mishnah went as far to say that it is permissible to lie to a tax collector to protect your personal belongings. So the religious leaders, as they're looking at Scripture, as they're informing the people, they're like, you shall not lie unless it's to a tax collector because they're terrible and that lie doesn't count. <laughs> like, it is endorsed to lie. It's condoned to lie to a tax collector. They are so hated. They are so lost. They are such an outsider. They're like the ultimate lost person. They're so lost, you're glad that they are lost. You do not like them at all. And here's this guy, and he is interested in Jesus. He knows Jesus is going to be coming. He knows he's going to be coming through there, but he also knows that anytime Jesus travels, there's a crowd. He wants to see him, and Zacchaeus is what we might say mm, vertically challenged. And so he knows it's going to be hard. If there's a spectacle, it's going to be hard to get close enough to see Jesus. Now, the average height around that time was 5'1 to 5'7 for, for an adult male. So he's shorter than that. He's, he's pretty little, and he's trying to get to Jesus. The only way he's going to get close enough and be able to see over the crowd is if he climbs a sycamore fig tree. A great climbing tree. 
So he climbs this tree and he waits for his opportunity to see this famous rabbi who was all the rage. Now, he didn't shout to get his attention like other encounters. He, he didn't call out, hey, Jesus, I need you to do this, or can you heal this person, or help me in this way. He, he didn't do that. He didn't work his way in the crowd to try and get close enough to touch his garment to be healed like, like other encounters with Jesus. He just wanted to see him. But he got more than he bargained for. Uh, Jesus includes the unlikely. And in verse 5, we see when Jesus reaches the spot, he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree and he says, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus comes down because Jesus, this rock star rabbi, told him to and he comes down and he welcomes him gladly. Like this is just best day of his life. It couldn't get better than this. This is incredible. Jesus includes him but this religious crowd has already written Zacchaeus off. Like, haters are going to hate, and they're not happy about this. This is the guy with no hope. This is the guy you don't want to align yourself with. He is, like, just to eat with him and to be in his house is going to turn some heads, and it's going to make some people assume some stuff about you, Jesus. It's like you got photographed with that like shady politician and the people that you're not supposed to be around and it's hitting TMZ and it, it's not good. You don't want to be with this person, Jesus. Or Jesus was really smart. He's got 12 guys and he needs to stay somewhere. So where are you going to stay? I'm going to stay at the rich single guy's house. Like, MTV Cribs Palestine edition. I want to stay at his place. That sounds great. He's the one that has all the money. It's going to be a fun time. So Jesus says, hey, I need to stay at your house. Zacchaeus is ecstatic about it, but then the chatter starts to happen. Then people start chirping. And all the people around him start to mutter, he's gone to the guest of a sinner. They know who he is. They know that, I guarantee you, that meal at Zacchaeus' house, it's not going to be a kosher meal. Ooh, you're going to be breaking laws. You're going to be getting into trouble. They know what his life is like. And Zacchaeus knows what his life is like as well. And this is where the guilt comes in. Remember, it's our hope and reality not equaling up. He knows who Jesus is, right? He wants to see him. He knows the types of things that Jesus teaches about. He knows the things that Jesus encourages his followers to live. He knows what the standard is. And Zacchaeus knows that he is not living that same life. He knows that his life is very different than what Jesus is calling him to. He knows that he's about to host this incredible rabbi who he respects, but he's about to host him in his own home that's been built by cheating his own people. And the disconnect of guilt becomes real for Zacchaeus. It's like the warning lights start flashing on his dashboard. Let's look at verse 8, what it says next. It says, Look, Lord, 
here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And he says in front of everyone, if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount of what I have cheated you. So in this moment, Zacchaeus goes big. He recognizes the guilt and he makes an immediate decision to do something about it. It is big, sudden, shocking, on-the-moment change. He immediately feels bad and addresses it in that moment. Now, I, I love when I'm hanging out with people and people don't really know who I am or what I do. And, you know, they're, they're talking the way they normally speak. And they're using the words and the phrases that they normally use in in everyday life and and then the topic comes around of like oh you know who are you what do you do and I try to give them an easy out and I'll be like oh I I I actually work for a church that's my like soft entry and then they go oh what are you like a pastor or something it's like uh yeah actually I am and that's when their eyes get really big and the best ones will go like oh yes I'm so sorry I didn't mean to say that you know they're like cussing as they're trying to apologize for cussing and I'm like it's okay (laughs) all right (laughs) it's fine I know that you cuss (laughs) you don't have to hide it it's not that's not real change is it like just because your grandmother's in the room and and you kind of start talking nice and and you use flowery language that's not really who you are And, and that's fine I'm not interested in in petty change. I'm interested in big change. I'm interested in real change. And that's what Jesus is interested in. That's the type of change Jesus wants to see in his life. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus does right here. He recognizes the guilt and he makes a huge 180 and is like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make it right. Real guilt invokes real change. Now, Jewish law said when you cheated someone, there was, there was a, a way to fix that. You cheat someone, you're required to pay the money back. Makes sense. But you're also required to give a tip, so to speak. You pay back 20% of whatever was stolen. Sounds good. You some trouble and some hassle for it. You pay them back in 20%. Zacchaeus pays a 400% tip on what he stole. It's incredible. He doesn't have to do this. This is not the standard that we see in the Old Testament law. He actually holds himself to the standard that they would reserve for a a livestock uh, thief, like a cattle rustler, so to speak. If you steal livestock, you're not just stealing property, you're stealing livelihood, right? It's a big deal. And so Old Testament law said you needed to pay back four times the amount. That's the standard that Zacchaeus holds himself to. He goes big and he goes beyond. Jesus tells a story about if you're forgiven little versus forgiven much, how are you going to respond? When you're forgiven a lot, you respond with grace, right? That's what we see. We see this massive shift in the heart of Zacchaeus. As we move on to verses 9 and 10, Jesus marks this occasion. Jesus hears the chatter. He knows what what people are saying. He knows people are 
in disgust, in awe, shock. The, he knows that people are, are chirping about, oh, I can't believe he would do this. Who is this guy? Jesus puts his marker down, and he says, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. He's not on the outside anymore. He's not the tax collector that it's okay to lie to. He's not lost on the outside. He is a true son of Israel. He is part of the family. He is together. He is with us. This is real. And then Jesus drops this line that is massive for Luke's gospel. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus is a funny name. Uh, it's a funny story, you know, this dude climbing a tree and stuff. We teach a song about Zacchaeus to our kids in, in kids' church, right? And some of you haven't listened to a single thing I've said because you've sang that song the whole time in your head, right? Um, but this part, this story is to highlight this one fact about Jesus, that he came to seek and to save the lost. Where this comes in Matthew's gospel, this is almost the very last story before Jesus enters Jerusalem and is captured and crucified. Luke is building his point. He's writing his gospel, trying to say, you need to understand who this person is. This is who Jesus is. And this one story bringing salvation to this guy that no one even thought would be eligible for salvation, that he would even want it, or that God could even save him. Jesus says, listen, my purpose is this. I've come to seek and to save the lost. So how do we handle that guilt? How do we handle that creature within us? I want to give us a a few quick things here at the end of what we do with guilt when we have it. The first thing we need to do is we need to analyze the guilt. We need to look at it and say, is this the good guilt that I really should have? Is this the bad guilt? Is it rational? Is it irrational? Is it productive or non-productive? Define why you feel guilty. And, and it might help to actually verbalize it, to, to say out loud in a sentence, this is why I feel guilty. And if it's something that doesn't even make sense, like, oh, I feel guilty that I forgot to go to the store and we don't have any milk and all I could make for dinner was oatmeal. Like, oh, that's not anything you should feel guilty about. Like, that's fine. You fed your kids, right? It's okay. That sounds like irrational guilt. Um, when you say your sentence, is hindsight involved? Like, oh, I feel bad that I told them to go this route, and then there was traffic, and now we're going to be late, and it's my fault because I told them to. Well, you couldn't have known that. That's hindsight. How, how could you have known then what you know now? And so maybe your guilt doesn't make sense. When you say it out loud and you analyze it, you start to go, hmm, I shouldn't be holding on to this. But maybe it is good guilt. Maybe it's productive guilt. And, and eventually, maybe we can learn to, to live with it. Maybe we can learn to let it go. We can endure it with God. Here's some steps on, on what we can do after we first analyze it. The, the next thing we need to do is we need to confess. We actually need to confess our guilt. This is the first thing that's required 
in Old Testament scripture for the removal of guilt. It's very clear in Leviticus 5.5. It says that, um, uh, what is it? It's up here. Did I put that up? Yeah, just that. Um, It says anyone, when they become aware of these matters, they must confess that they have sinned. They, They must confess in what way they have sinned when you become aware of it. Confession in the the Catholic Church can can be a really great thing. Honestly, we should have practices of regular rhythms of confession. It, It would probably be very helpful for us. Now, there is a difference of confessing to someone in a dark box that's sworn to secrecy versus sometimes we need to put on our big boy pants and our big girl pants and actually go look at the person and talk to them and confess to them what we did. And that's scary, right? That's when your heart is pounding and your hands are sweaty and you can feel your whole body shaking because you're having to confess to someone. Now, the next thing we should do after we confess is we should, we should apologize. Hey, this happened, right? And, and I'm sorry that this happened. Now, I think about with, with my kids, I think it's helpful to think of a good apology and also how do we want our kids to say thank you? We want our kids to say thank you, right? Um, but not just thank you. No, thank you for what? Thank you for my sandwich. Okay, cool. Hey, thank you for making me a sandwich and, you know, providing for me. Thank you for making this delicious, healthy meal and for saving money so that I can have a college fund someday or something. Like, kids are never going to do that, right? But thank you for what? So thank you for, the same is true in apology. I'm sorry for what? I'm sorry for this. And then add because to it. So, I'm sorry for what I said because it, it wasn't honoring. I'm sorry for what I said because it causes dissension in our team, and, and I want our team to be unified. So go a step further, and then you'll start to understand your values in that. If you're using I'm sorry for, and you're using but instead of because, that's a problem. That's like, I'm sorry I said your idea was stupid, but it is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you can't use but when you're apologizing. <laughs> you can use because, so add because in there, and that'll help get you to the point that you need to. Here's the other thing with apologizing. You might have to do it a few times. It might take a few times of you saying the same thing with your heart pounding in the hands, sweaty, because we don't really hear and listen as much as we think that we do. There's a Harvard study that says uh, almost half the time our minds are wondering. We are not focused and paying attention very much, which is very concerning when you're a communicator for a living, all right? Most of the time, 47% of the time, our minds are wondering. We're daydreaming. We're worrying. We're remembering. We're anticipating. We're doing anything other than being here and now. And if that's true in our normal life, it's probably also true if we're trying to apologize to someone. Because your heart's pounding, but they're probably 
thinking and processing as well. They're probably thinking of some rebuttals. They're probably contemplating if they actually want to forgive you for what you're saying. They genuinely might not hear you. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, who was a, a playwright, political activist, he won a Nobel Prize for Literature in, in 1925. He said the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it's taken place. We think we've communicated. We think we've apologized, but we actually haven't. Now, as we analyze our guilt, as we confess to the other person, as we apologize, we see this big thing that Zacchaeus does. And what he does is he makes it right. This is called restitution. The U.S. actually has rules on how you make it right when you have hurt someone or when you've damaged someone. It's called the Mandatory Restitution Act of 1996. I I read some of it this week. It's really boring. But it lays out really specific things of if this happens, here is the standard that you have to do. We have this in the Old Testament too. Again, it's really boring, but it provides these guardrails of here's how you make it right. Here's how you treat one another. And so this week, I want to leave you with Romans 12. As we talk about how do you make it right with someone, there's this passage in Romans 12, 9 through 21. We won't read it here. I I, I want you to read it this week. But it's full of all of these things that are, are so helpful about how to treat one another. Being devoted to one another in love, honoring people above yourself, uh, sharing with people in need, practicing hospitality, blessing those who persecute you, living in harmony, not avenging evil for evil, living at peace, not taking revenge. Like, there's all these good things. And here's the deal. I could take that passage and I could say, hey, here's the standard. Here's where you are. You're not living up to it. And I could make you feel bad. I could make you feel guilty. And I could use guilt as that motivator to try to move action and get you to that standard. But here's the deal with this passage. You have to look at how it starts in verse 9. And it starts by saying that love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. And when love is sincere, then we can do these other things. Then we can live out this type of life. Zacchaeus paid back his debts. He sacrificed in huge ways. He did things that were way beyond his obligation, but he did it from a place of joy. He did it because love was sincere. So when guilt arises in our lives, we need to analyze it. We need to confess. We need to apologize. We need to make it right. But the goal is not just the removal of guilt. The goal is not just to turn off that check engine light and get rid of the warning sign. The goal is what we find in Psalm 51.10. The goal is to create in me a pure heart, O God, and to renew a steadfast spirit within me.